one of the best teachers I ever had was uh, my seventh grade science teacher. Uh, his name was Mr. Meyer. And I remember I was into like space and astronomy. I, I just was really interested in that at that age. And I remember Mr. Meyer just like opening up our imaginations to the, the size of the universe, the wonders of the universe. And I'll never forget this lesson he gave to help us understand the speed of light. I can just remember it with crystal clarity uh, as if I was there still. Um, he, he said, imagine you have this magic bow and arrow. And it's magic because when you fire this arrow, the arrow is going to travel at the speed of light. And also the arrow is not going to fall to the ground. So it's just going to stay level. Um, and I remember him saying, now after you fire this arrow, you're going to want to move because that arrow is going to come around the earth eventually back to where you are. And so he, he says, okay, you're going to fire this arrow at the speed of light. How long do you think it's going to take to come back around? And people start shouting out answers, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes. And I remember one kid was like, one second. And everyone was like, oh, that's ridiculous. And then I just saw this grin on Mr. Meyer's face because he said, one second, huh? It's actually way faster than that. And we were all like, what? And he, he proceeded to tell us that after you fire this arrow, you better drop to the ground like instantly because if that arrow is going the speed of light, it will go all the way around the earth six times in one second. And we were all just like, what? That's crazy. And then he proceeded to, to, to teach us. He, he said, I, I want to teach you about the size of the universe. So with that speed in mind, the speed of that magic arrow going around the earth six times in one second, imagine you could fly in a spaceship going that fast. He said it would take you four years going that speed to get to the closest star in the sky to our solar system. Four years at that speed. And we were just like, wow. I mean, aren't teachers amazing? I mean, first of all, it's like, wow, what a great lesson. Uh, and I think since that day, I've just been in awe of the vastness uh, of space. If you've been following the news recently, uh, you may have heard this story that we now have the first ever photograph, picture of a black hole. And that's it. It made this big news a couple weeks ago. Scientists were basically agreed that black holes existed, and it was mainly theory, um, but they were just kind of assuming it was there based on certain measurements. This is the first time they actually took a picture, and, and reading about how they did, it's amazing. It's these scientists from around the world essentially combined all of these telescopes to make an Earth-sized telescope. And then they were able to see this, this black hole and actually get a picture of it. Uh, that thing is 55 million light years away. Which means, if you could fly in a spaceship at that speed of the magic arrow, it'd take you 55 million years to get there. That's pretty far away. <laughs> Which, if you know anything about science, that also means that you're looking 55 million years into the past at this image, right? Because the light takes 55 million years to get here. And with that statement right there that I just made, we have crossed into a discussion that has been going on for many, many years uh, between the scientific community and people of faith. When you make a claim about something being 55 million years old or 55 million light years away, uh, you're making a claim about the age of the universe, the size of the universe, things like that. On one side of the discussion has been the scientific community, which makes claims about uh, the age of the universe, the, the origins of the universe, you know, the Big Bang, 
carbon dating, the origins of life, evolution, those sorts of things. And, and their claims are based on observations and certain theories that they have. On the other side of the discussion has been people of faith who, you know, look to the scriptures um, and find a little bit of a different story, a universe that maybe is younger, different processes of life coming to earth, uh, the existence of a creator. Unfortunately, this discussion um, leaves many who, who see it in the public to feel like science and religion are just completely incompatible or at odds. They just can't coexist. And, and Christians are stereotyped by scientists, and also scientists are stereotyped by Christians. Uh, I think Christians in this discussion can feel that God or the Bible is somehow threatened by scientific discovery. I think scientists are made to feel sometimes that their discoveries, that things they've committed their life to, are just sort of brushed aside uh, by people who don't really have any background in science. And so what happens is there's this bright line drawn in our culture in this discussion between what seem like two incompatible worldviews, the naturalistic viewpoint of the scientific community and the theological viewpoint of those of faith. Um, And I think people are made to feel like they have to choose sides. It's like a fight. Which side am I on? So as Jenny mentioned, we're in this series, The Big Questions, and we did get a few questions along the lines of this. How should we think about the book of Genesis? What does it say about creation? How does that relate to what the scientific community says? Can we take the Bible literally? Those sorts of things. And and these are really important questions for us to think about. This is a discussion that's happening in the public sphere. Um, And I think for people of faith, there are dangers and opportunities on this subject, this conversation. The danger, I think, for Christians is if we have kind of a knee-jerk, anti-science stance, it can actually compromise our ability to speak to people about Christ because we can just seem sort of argumentative or dismissive, um, so it doesn't create a a very positive tone. Um, Also, it seems like, you know, we're trying to get people to accept the truth about God while, in their view, asking them to deny what seems like truth from the scientific community or, or things that are based on evidence. And so there's a disconnect there. So that's, I think, a danger of just uh, being kind of anti-science, just knee-jerk uh, posture. But the opportunity in this discussion, and this is really my hope for today, is, is that we would know God better. This discussion can lead us to know God better as he is, because in the Bible, we meet a creator God. And knowing more about his creation helps us to grasp more about his majesty and know him as he actually is. Yes, as you imagine, this message is going to be a little different than uh, most messages. But, you know, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength and your mind. So I think questions like this, topics like this, this is an opportunity for us to worship the Lord, love the Lord with our mind, and think about these deep questions. Um, My goal is not to deepen this divide or make the argument more of an argument. That's not my goal for today. Uh, My goal is to help deepen our understanding of God and his word and, and to think about these deep questions that are really fundamental to life regardless of your background or your spiritual outlook. These are some of the deepest questions that we can ask. Where did everything come from? You know, how did he get here? Um, and it, this series, too, is really born out of our family values as a church, and we print them on that banner back there. Um, a couple of those are, we are a friend to people who are different from us, 
We are a friend to people who are far from God. That means if you're here today and you're skeptical about God, you're skeptical about the Bible being true, or you have some viewpoint that's different than your understanding of the traditional Christian viewpoint, you are welcome here to explore these questions. This series is for you. We are glad you're here. And uh, we would welcome dialogue, too, after the fact, if you have more questions. So the question that we're going to kind of focus on as we think about this is this. What does Genesis tell us about God and his creation? The book of Genesis in the Bible. What does Genesis tell us about God and his creation? This is going to be the lens through which we're going to explore some of these questions about uh, creation and reading the Bible literally and those sorts of things. Um, so if you have your Bible with you, uh, turn to Genesis 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It is located at the beginning of the Bible. It's on page, I don't know, it's on page 1 probably uh, if you're looking at those Bibles on the tables. Um, but we always encourage people to, to bring their Bibles, open their Bibles, dive in uh, to Scripture with us, though we will have the passages up on the screen as well. So we're going to read Genesis starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Now, we're going to do something a little different than we normally do. Typically, what we do is we'll read a passage of Scripture, we'll kind of pick it apart and look at what certain words mean and really kind of dive in deep. We're going to do something different. We're going to read the creation account in its entirety together. Uh, I'm going to read it, and there are going to be some portions I want you to read with me, and I'll cue you on that, so we'll read those parts aloud together. So it's going to be a longer passage than usual. Hang with me. We're not going to go back through it and like dissect it. We're just going to read it. We're going to read it once, and then we'll talk about it afterwards. But uh, just so you know, as we're reading it, we're not going to go like try to unpack it all again afterwards. We're just going to read it through once. So let's read together Genesis 1, the creation account. I'll step aside here so you can see. It starts Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now read this phrase with me. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water uh, under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky. Read this again. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. And let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser lights to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, 
to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good, read it again, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and what moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, so that's the creation account in Genesis 1. So now that we've read that, there are some things I want us to consider. Here's the first one. Um, How should we read Genesis? How should we read it? Some of you are like, Ryan, we just read it. It was pretty easy, actually. Um, What do you mean, how should we read it? What I mean by that is what should our expectations be of this creation account in Genesis 1? Um, Should we read it literally? What do we mean by that when we say, should we read it literally? Uh, In my experience, when people talk about reading the Bible literally, what they mean is basically, can I just take it at face value in English as I read it? Does the passage just mean what I think the plain, straightforward meaning is just upon reading it myself? That's what I think most people mean by, can we read it literally? Um, I think, though, it's so important to understand the rich literary diversity of the Bible because the Bible's not a book. It's actually a library. It is a collection of books, and they're not modern books. They're ancient books of a variety of types of literature um, written, by the way, in other ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek. The Bible did not fall out of the sky in English. 
It's a collection, a rich collection of ancient literature. Um, and this tells us something about God. He wanted to reveal his truth, his, his word, through variety. That was part of his plan. He could have just made everything exactly the same in the Bible. It's all the same type of literature. We read it all the same way, but he didn't do that. And so to appreciate the fullness of Scripture, we actually shouldn't read it all in the same way. We have to try to understand it on its own terms, not just impose our modern Western lenses on it. Um, And this is really important, this idea of different types of literature, because we read different types of literature instinctively in different ways. Let me give you a modern example. Uh, When you read like a news article, that's a certain type of literature and you have certain expectations of it that are very different from song lyrics. If If you look at song lyrics or you sing a song, very different. Have you ever noticed how much repetition there is in song lyrics? You just sing the same things over and over and over and that doesn't bother us. We're not like, golly, they said this eight times already. Why, I just heard it the first time. Why do you keep reading this? They're song lyrics. We expect to repeat choruses and repeat verses. That's how it goes. News article, not so much. Imagine if a news article you were reading it and started to operate by the rules of, of song lyrics, you know, a winter storm warning for the Midwest. There's a mi- winter storm warning for the Midwest. In the Midwest, there's a winter storm warning in the Midwest. You know, we'd be like, did they fall asleep on the keyboard? We got it the first time. It's two different types of literature, and we just instinctively expect different things from them. Same thing. You wouldn't read an email with the same expectations as a novel, you don't read them the same. The same is, the tr- is true of Scripture. The Psalms, for example, are ancient poems. They're song lyrics. They're meant to uh, excite our imagination and make us think uh, about God in different ways. Um, the letters in the New Testament are actual letters. Uh, there are historical books in the Bible that just lay out events in a pretty straightforward way. And so there's this rich diversity in what Scripture is. And so I would encourage you, when we think about reading the Bible literally, I would actually encourage you to, to think less about should I or shouldn't I read it literally, um, which just implies basically it's either literal or not. I would encourage you to think more about reading it literarily. Read the Bible literarily. And what I mean by that is to read according to each type of book. Have a sense of the type of book that you're reading. Some of it's very straightforward. Some of it's figurative and understanding the differences. Um, This, by the way, doesn't mean you're taking the Bible less seriously. I would argue it means you're taking it more seriously. Because you're saying God chose to reveal his word with this type of ancient literature, and I want to try to understand it as it is rather than just sort of impose my modern lenses on it. So when it comes to Genesis, if we want to read it that way, if we want to think about genre and what we're reading, um, there's really kind of two literary main divisions in the book of Genesis. Most scholars would agree um, that the first 11 chapters of Genesis they call prehistory, Some use the term primordial history, which sounds way more epic. Uh, Prehistory, primordial history. This is where you get the creation account, Adam and Eve, um, Noah, the Tower of Babel, these early events uh, in history. And then the second part of Genesis starts in chapter 12 when Abraham appears and his wife Sarah and God speaks to them, gives um, uh, promises about his people, and then it follows the story of their family, right? Isaac, their son, and then Jacob, and then it finishes with Joseph, and he's in Egypt. So those are kind of the the two parts of Genesis. The first part, 1 to 11, the dates are really hard to nail down. 
The chronology is really hard to know exactly when that was. I had a professor who once described the prehistory portion of Genesis as like in Star Wars when they're at like light speed. It's like a light speed overview of like early history. And then when you get to chapter 12, it's like that moment when they come out of hyperspace and it's like, and everything just slows down. That's chapter 12 because archaeologists and and historians can date the time of Abraham pretty close to about 2000 BC. But everything before that in 1 to 11, it's like, you know, there's all kinds of theories about those timelines, but, you know, they're they're guesses. Um, And so when it comes to creation, we're in the first part of that. We're in the prehistory part of the story. And literarily, Genesis 1, the creation account, which we read earlier, um, is highly poetic, highly literary. Um, Did you notice as we were reading through it, all the repetition? According to their kinds, according to this kind, according to that time, and then the thing that we repeated out loud together um, over and over, um, it has these poetic qualities to it. In the original Hebrew, there's alliteration, uh, there's lots of repetition, has a hymn-like quality to it, Genesis 1. So it, it seems to be a, a, po- a poetic form of literature. Now, when I said that, some of you heard poetic and heard not true, like it's a fable or something. Uh, that's not a correct assumption either because, and I want to make this point uh, put up on the screen here, truth can be conveyed artistically. History can be conveyed artistically. So saying that Genesis 1 is poetic is not saying that that stuff didn't happen. It's saying that it's being conveyed in a genre that is artistic. Um, and this is true of all through the Bible. I mean, think about this. Psalm 23, it says, the Lord is my shepherd. It's this beautiful image about God is a shepherd and we are a sheep. Now, it's not saying we are actual sheep or that God is an actual shepherd. This is imagery. It's metaphor. Um, Jesus' parables are fictional they're, they're teaching something true. They're making a true point, but they were stories he made up to illustrate that point. So he wasn't like telling a story of a friend he knew. He was telling a story. Um, and so there is art, there is metaphor throughout scripture that conveys something true. Um, let me give you one modern example of this too. Um, in the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, there's this awful event of the city Guernica was just bombed mercilessly. All these women and children were killed. It was this terrible thing. And if you want to learn about the Guernica bombing and massacre, you can read the newspaper articles. You can look at photographs like this one of the ruins when it was finished. Um, But the most famous historical record of that, the Guernica massacre bombing, is this, Pablo Picasso's famous painting, Guernica. Now, I don't think he was going for hyper-precision here, but he was trying to convey this event happened and, and, and the death and destruction and pain, and he was doing so deliberately in a non-literal way. He, you know, he was the surrealist uh, cubist painting, So this event really happened, this bombing, and this is an artistic expression of what actually occurred. Um, This happens in music all the time. I mean, Sunday Bloody Sunday, U2 song that, like, got me hooked into them. They're talking about the troubles in Northern Ireland in the 1970s. These are real historical events that happened, and they wrote song lyrics about it. The song lyrics are not a literal chronicle of what happened. It's it's the feelings that they had in, in living through that terrible time. But our Western minds want precision. 
That's what we want. We want the exact precision. We want the photograph. We don't want the art. That's what we're after. Uh, but we have to remember the Bible is not a modern document. It is not Western literature. It's ancient. And so my point is that art can convey truth. They can even con- convey history. And so Genesis 1, in my view, uh, is, is that. It is narrating truth, things that actually happened about creation, but in a selective way, in a literary way, in poetic fashion. It's not a science textbook. And it's not trying to be a science textbook, Genesis 1. So if it's describing creation in these creative ways, poetically, let's talk about what we actually learn from it. We read it earlier, but there's this beautiful structure to it. So let's look at this right now. Days 1 to 3, yeah, what does Genesis describe about creation? Um, Days 1 to 3, God forms these environments. That's what he creates first. And then if you lay days 4, 5, and 6 next to it, on 4, 5, and 6, he creates the inhabitants of those environments whether it's living things or, you know, planets, those sorts of things. And so it's this, it's this we're getting the, the, the overview of the order of creation, how God went about his creation. Now, the big question about this is how long are these days? This is, gets all kind of discussion. Should we assume that they're literal 24-hour days, these six days? They could be, definitely. Uh, they might not be. Because I do want to point this out, God didn't create the sun until day four. So what does it mean to say there was evening and there was morning on days one to three when there's no sun yet? How do you have a morning without a sunrise? How do you have an evening without a sunset? I think that's a clue that these may not be literal 24-hour days. This has led many biblical scholars to conclude that, that these are not six 24-hour days, but six eras, six distinct periods of God's creative activity. Um, The Hebrew word for day is yom. Everybody say that. Yom. That's a fun one to say. Yom, the word for day in Hebrew, is used literally and figuratively in Genesis. Sometimes it means a 24-hour day. Sometimes it doesn't. And by the way, we do that in English all the time. We might say today or, you know, this is a day. We mean a 24-hour day. And we say Back in the day, in my day, you know, give me a minute. So we use these chronological words in figurative ways all the time, and ancient Hebrew did that as well. Um, If it's the case that God's creative activity happened in six longer periods rather than six 24-hour days, lots of things that are questions for us, like the dinosaurs and carbon dating and a black hole 55 million light years away, those things are no longer automatically inconsistent with Scripture because this may have been referring to a much longer period of time. But I do want to back up to the even deeper question, what's at stake if God didn't create the universe in six literal 24-hour days? What's at stake? Is he less powerful? Is he less of a creator for using processes to create? I mean, if I'm not mistaken, each one of us in this room was created through a nine-month process. Would God be more our creator if we appeared fully formed as an infant or as a fully grown adult? Is he less powerful if he created the laws of nature and used a million years to form a planet instead of one day? 
A million years is nothing to an eternal creator. I mean, don't take my word for it. Peter said this in 2 Peter 3.8, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. It's the same to him. Now, let me be clear. He might have done it in the six 24-hour days. I'm not saying that he couldn't have. He certainly could have. I'm just saying the creation account as described in the ancient Hebrew language in this poetic literary form that we have it doesn't require us to believe that it was six literal 24-hour days. I do think one clear line needs to be drawn, though, um, and it, it has to do with us. Genesis describes humanity, we read this earlier, as created in God's image. And all the New Testament writers, including Jesus, believed Adam and Eve were real individuals created by God at a point in time in his image. And I believe that rules out, from a biblical perspective, any idea that humans evolved directly from apes. That issue, I don't believe, should be reconciled with the scientific viewpoint that we are highly functioning apes. I think that's, that cannot be reconciled. We were created in God's image, um, and that's something I think we, we need to stick to if we're going to stick to what Genesis teaches us. So, we started out, what does Genesis tell us about God and his creation? I think here's the answer, the simplest answer I can give is that God made the universe out of nothing in an orderly manner, creating only one thing in his image, us. God made the universe out of nothing in an orderly manner, creating only one thing in his image, us. That's the basic picture of creation. It's affirmed in the rest of scripture. And as we think about this, as we think about this discussion of science and and faith and how they relate, I think we have to embrace a couple of ideas. The first one is this. There are some questions the Bible doesn't answer. Not because it's trying to and fails. It just doesn't. Uh, It doesn't give us clarity on many things. Um, Genesis 1 is not a photograph. It's not a science textbook. It's not a history book. It's not trying to be. It is truth. It's telling us what happened but in a selective, poetic, artistic manner. You know, I I think what we look for in this kind of thing, we look to Genesis and we want this, right? We want this this crystal clear photograph. Here's this building. We know every nook and cranny, exactly what it looks like. That's what we want in Genesis. But I think what God gave us in Genesis is this. It's the same church. It's, It's the same picture, but it's an artistic rendering. It's not given us the precision that we might desire as modern Western thinkers. But lacking scientific precision in a non-scientific piece of ancient literature shouldn't scare us. It shouldn't rattle us. We can trust that God knew what he was doing when he told us his creation story in a highly literary, poetic manner, an artistic manner. Maybe his purpose wasn't to give us a thorough briefing of every single detail of creation, exactly as it happened. Maybe his purpose was to lead us to imagine his grandeur and that poetry, art, is the genre that makes the most sense to do that. There's another thing we need to admit when we think about this question. So there are some things the Bible doesn't answer. Also, there are some questions science can't answer. There are some questions science can't answer. I read this uh, interview recently, great interview with um, 
uh, Brian Cox, who's a, a British um, physicist, a professor of uh, particle physics at the uh, University of Manchester. He happens to be an atheist, and, and he, I thought he had a great perspective on sort of the limits of science, and he said this. He said, we don't know all the answers. We don't know where the laws of nature came from. It's quite an admission. We don't know where the laws of nature came from. We don't know why the universe began. Science can sometimes sound arrogant, he said. It's important to be humble when we're talking about science. It's not able to answer ultimate questions at the moment. So there are some questions science can't answer. Why we're here, the purpose of our life, the meaning of it all. Science can't tell us those things. So if we believe in the God of creation, we sang about this earlier, God of creation, we don't need to view scientific discovery as a threat. It is an opportunity to understand our creator better because he created science. He made the rules of nature. I mean, some of the greatest scientists in history were people of faith. They saw no inconsistency between their work and their belief in God. Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Pascal, Isaac Newton. Mr. Meyer, my seventh grade science teacher, he was a Christian. You know how I know? I went to church one day, and I went to get a bulletin when I was walking in the door, and it was him handing him out, and it kind of freaked me out, honestly. But he obviously saw no disparity between his belief in God and his profession, which was science. We're just scratching the surface with this today. I understand that. There's more that could be said. Uh, But I do want to give you a few uh, recommendations to read if you would like to explore this more. Uh, The first is an article. It's not actually a very long article either. It was published in Christianity Today uh, just a few weeks ago, I think. Um, Professor Rosalind Picard at MIT wrote this article. I love the title. An MIT professor meets the author of all knowledge, and then the subtitle is the best. I used to think religious people were ignoramuses. Then I got smart and took a chance on God. She talks about her journey of faith and how she doesn't see any, uh, you know, problem in reconciling the idea of an all-powerful creator God and her discipline, um, which happens to be focusing on uh, artificial intelligence. So that's one thing. Um, If you want a couple of books that you can go uh, look up, the first one is for kids. We've been going through this with our kids, Indescribable, 100 Devotions About God and Science. That's by Louis Giglio. It's a great way to just, you know, allow your kids to to reflect on the the awesomeness of who God is and his creation. Um, And the second, I mentioned this uh, a couple of weeks ago, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. He's got a chapter in the first part of the book that is um, addressing the supposed uh, conflict between science and religion. And uh, he talks about a lot, some of the issues we've talked about this morning. I want to close with this. It's okay to not know everything. (laughs) It's okay. God doesn't require us to have scientific precision about our universe and creation to know him. That's not not, uh, a requirement. Um, We know what we need to know. In fact, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know God, get to know Jesus. Learning about the universe shouldn't intimidate us. In fact, it can even drive us to seek God and to worship him. This is the effect it had on King David. Uh, When he looked up at the stars and the moon and the sun, it drove him to worship his creator. Um, That's what he wrote about in Psalm 8. Look what he said in Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. When I consider your heavens, 
the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place. What is mankind that you're mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. This is David reflecting on the creator God and just it's unfathomable what he made and how grand he is and that he would even take notice of us, <laughs> let alone love us. It's amazing.